Welcome to Curious with Josh Peck. Start the show. Welcome back to the Curious Podcast. My name is Josh Peck and I'm your host and your name is Listener and that's what you do. You listen. And right now we got some of that ill podcasting for you. My friend Nick Bilton is back. He's he's truly one of my favorite authors, writers. You know, I, I fell in love with his book, Catching Twitter, as it was suggested by a friend of mine, Casey Neistat. No big deal. We're very close. And then it led me to read his next book, American Kingpin, which is about Ross Ulbricht and the Silk Road. And I just think Nick is masterful when it comes to telling incredibly interesting, true stories in a way that feels like you're reading just a really juicy crime novel. And, right, you know, doing this podcast is is sort of an effort in which to talk to people like Nick. So the fact that we got to connect last year and I got to have him on the show and now we're kind of friends and that he was willing to jump into the pod during this crazy pandy of ours was just awesome. So we had a great conversation. Make sure you check out his podcast for Vanity Fair called Inside the Hive. And I hope you enjoy Nick Built It. Dude, how are you? I'm okay. How are you? Are you you're like what a a, couple, a mile away from me or something like that? I am. I'm not far away, and I've got you know I'm in a two bedroom apartment with a 16 month old. So what could go wrong? Oh, nice. Well, we at least have a backyard, but we have a three year old and a four and a half year old, and a mother in law and uh, two large dogs. One of which is a German Shepherd that thinks it's his job to bark at every single solitary thing that walks by our house. Oy, so, oy other than vey. that, we're doing great. Sounds like heaven. <laughs> <laughs> um, how, uh, how's, the, how's the little one? The little one is great. He's delicious and very normal. So around this age, so I've heard uh, children decide, hey, if I just throw random tantrums, perhaps I'll get more of the things I want. So he's very much there. Am I allowed to curse on this on this show? Please. So you, what you're in for, this is probably a bad idea that you have me on the show because <laughs> what you're in for is about to get worse. So you have the, the one to two-year-old tantrum phase, and then you've obviously heard of the terrible twos. Sure. But then, then after the terrible twos, you have a three-nager. Have you heard of a three-nager? Because you're going to have a three-nager. Great. Which is, and then you have the fucking fours. <laughs> uh-huh. And then after that, they're just, they just go straight into being like adolescent five. Like our kid is almost five years old and he has figured out how to do Siri. And he literally just goes up and he goes, hey, Siri, play the like poo-poo song, just making it random. And of course, like it's like a rap song from like Jay-Z or something. I don't know what it is, but then you've got to deal with that. So you're in for it, my friend. Well, my son has uh, figured out Alexa, but he can only say Alela. So he can't activate her yet, but it's coming. <laughs> so are you um, are you working now? Like, what's are you, are you? Is it like are you just confined to your house? Like, what's what's going on over there? So I was supposed to start a new show for Disney Plus in two weeks. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's kind of in flux, but you know, all the pre-production is still going on as far as writing episodes and whatnot. It's just over zoom yeah. and hopefully, mm -hmm. 
Hopefully it'll start by the end of August or or at least whenever we come back online, but it's also shooting in Canada and who knows if they're going to let like these disease riddled Americans into their <laughs> plush country. Um yeah, no, I don't I don't I don't know if you'll be going to Canada. I think that I've been hearing like lots of things of how Hollywood is trying to solve this like I heard that the um I think it was The Bachelor, someone was mentioning to me that they're going to take over an entire hotel and no one is going to be allowed to leave. Um, wow. And, and that's how they're going to shoot it because they have to shoot it. Like Big Brother meets Bachelor. Exactly. Maybe they should shoot the shooting of the shooting. Um, but then there's like another production I've heard where they're going to try to institute rapid testing every morning and that... So like, you know how like there's that 15 minute test that the pre- that you have to get if you go and um, and meet Donald Trump and Mike Pence. Um, there's like, it's a rapid test. Like they're oh, talking, really? to, talking about doing that and that everyone will have to wear gloves and masks unless it's like you're on the actual behind the camera um, or in front of the camera, sorry. Um, yeah, so it's pretty wild to hear about how, how people are trying to solve it uh, until anything changes. And what's it like, I mean, you, as far as, you know, writing books and writing for so many different outlets and obviously the podcast, it seems like you can probably be pretty efficient during this time. Well, for me, it's funny because everyone, when, when the quarantine happened, um, we, we actually, so I, I've worked on enough like, uh, news articles and, and uh, like, TV shows and movies and things like that about the end of the world that like when in like late February, I was like, oh, this is bad. Um, And so I started, I started buying groceries in late February. I like bought some shelving and put it in our basement. I started like stocking up on things, especially for the kids. Cause I like had like this idea that something was going to, that it was going to, this was going to be really bad. And my, uh, my wife and my mother-in-law were looking at me like I was literally out of my mind as I like would come home with grocery bag after grocery bag. And then the quarantine happened and they were like, oh my God, you're like a clairvoyant. But the reason I tell that story is because from that, that was the only time that anything was different for me because from that moment on, like I've been working from home for 20 years. Like, so nothing changed. Right. I still write on my laptop. I still record podcasts on this. It's like nothing, literally nothing changed for me as far as work goes. So, which I'm very lucky. I, you know, still have jobs, whereas a lot of Americans don't. But, but it was um, the transition has been uh, uh, the only thing that really changed is the fact that my three nager and my fucking four year old are now here all the time. Uh, other than that, everything kind of remained the same. And what was the at late February, what was the tipping point for you that that sent you to Costco to start loading up? It was so I've been working on this movie for Amazon for for a couple of years now. We're still in the script phase because we've done a few a few different versions of it. But it's essentially it was a movie about it was based off some reporting I did um, for Vanity Fair a long time ago about like people buying bunkers in the Midwest and in New Zealand these billionaires so that when the apocalypse hit. They had somewhere to go. And my, um, uh, so I had been embedded in the research. And I'd also, about 10 years ago, maybe 10 or 11 years ago, I was in Canada giving a talk at some tech symposium thing. And the keynote speaker at the end of this 
talk, it was like a TED kind of like thing, but it was in Canada. I don't even remember the name of it. But the keynote speaker was the ex-director of the CIA. And he got up and gave this, one of the most terrifying talks I've ever seen in my life, talking about how EMPs, do you know what an EMP is? The electromagnetic pulse? Yeah, so the, so back in the like 80s and 90s, there was this fear that Russia would set off an electromagnetic pulse bomb over the United States that would destroy every electronic in our power grids, right? Right. And the way these things, they're silent, right? The way they work is they're essentially nukes without the 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 big mushroom cloud and everything. And they just, it's like pop. Like in every single solitary thing with a computer chip in it, would be fried and you wouldn't know what it would happen. And the, the, he, he showed how like, if you just, all it would take would be a certain level of one in the middle of America and, and that would be it. And I remember seeing him give that talk and like how, like how, what could go wrong in such an instance and so on. And then a few years later, I, I came across, as I was doing reporting on some other like end of the world hacker stuff, I came across this report from the, the state department, which was, which took that that level of thinking, but also applied it to hackers taking down the power grid or some other kind of terrible event. And um, and then what happened was that in that report, it predicted that if something terrible like this were to happen, where the power grids would be knocked out, um, 90% of, of Americans would die within the first year, which of course was a little terrifying. So I started like after hearing all these things and reading these things, I started to become a little bit of a prepper, which led me to work on this movie. And so I've been keeping track of like all the like, you know, apocalyptic kind of things for research for the film and for research for Vanity Fair. And so when this all happened, started in Wuhan in January, I was like pretty in tune to it. I didn't know, of course, like how bad it was going to be. I just knew that this was kind of, this was bad. And I remember specifically seeing a news report, I don't remember where I saw it, but it was a, 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 a video taken on a cell phone in Wuhan of a, a man who had just died, literally in the mall. Um, just, he was just laying there. And I was like, oh, if that's happening and someone's getting cell phone footage of that, like this is gonna get bad. So that was the thing that led me to start my panicked chopping spree. Well, I think we can both agree, Nick. I'm going to be part of that 90% of Americans who die in the first year. <laughs> do, you, do you ever consider that? Like, I understand. I guess the idea is like, how do you get over the one or two or three month hole of like everything, the infrastructure dropping out? But my fear is like, what about once I go through all my supplies? Like, I have to be part of the 10% to rebuild the country and or the human race. I don't know if I'm equipped. I had a fun a fun idea for a film that I'm going to pitch you that I thought was I thought it was kind of comical, which is so you know how like the virus doesn't really affect kids um and children. Yeah. So if you what if you you this is my pitch, you ready? Um you can be the TV or film executive and I'll be the writer coming into the room. Yes, and I've always wanted here, to be this. Here so um so the film starts with some sort of pandemic. Uh it's like coronavirus but much worse and any adult that gets it dies. But children they can live and they it doesn't even affect them. And so what happens is this we we come to this realization and uh Kids have to go out into the workforce in order to keep everything going uh, as the parents have to stay inside. And and that's my movie. I love it. And 
my next question is, can we make The Rock play 16 years old? <laughs> I, I think with enough CGI, we can make it happen. We can make it happen, yeah. <laughs> no, it's terrifying. It is. It all is. Yes. Are you like, how far in your prep do you go? Like, because our mutual friend Casey Neistat, and I don't think I'm like pulling the covers off, but he was sort of of like, I need a car that can drive over 300 miles on one tank, tank, tank of gas. I need to find an off-grid location where my family and I can live that's completely, you know, solar powered, like a place in which where if we were untouched by civilization for over a year, we'd be fine. And that seems pretty severe. Uh, but doesn't he just live in LA on Venice Beach? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's like his bug out shelter. Like I want to be able to Got do it. a straight shot the moment the EMP falls. So I, I don't go that far if I, you know, if, if I was like, you know, if I had Mark Zuckerberg money, sure, I would do that. But like, uh, that is never going to happen. Um, but the, 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 like, I, I'm pretty aware of like all the scenarios. Like I, I truly find all this stuff so fascinating, like how, how the world would end and, or could end or will end. And, um, and I've had a lot of guests on my podcast talking about it. I've done a lot of research about it. Read like, I've read all these end of the world books that, you know, I find they're just fun and interesting and fascinating to like kind of imagine. Um, and, uh, and, and especially when you get into kind of some of the physics of it, you know, like of all these things that could happen in space that we're uneven, uh, completely have no, uh, roll in, um, like space time, just stopping and the universe collapsing in on itself, like things like that. But the, the thing that I think is so interesting is like, is how little people do prepare. You know, I mean, it's like, I have lots of boxes of water. Um, I have, um, I have, I don't really have, I've heard people that I don't have weapons cause I don't, I'm not a gun person, but like, I do know people that are preppers per se that have, they have guns and what they do is, um, they have, have a, a hole cut in their wall and they put the gun in the wall and then they seal the wall. And so that they can't access the gun in like a quick instance, they can only access it in case of like an apocalypse kind of event. Interesting. It's like, it's smart. It's like, you know, if like all hell breaks loose and you need to protect your family, like that's smart rather than like accidentally shooting yourself in the foot when you're like cleaning it one day. Um, Which is more likely. More likely for both you and I, without question. Yes. Um, uh, but but then there's the, um, uh, you know, like I, I, I have, you know, waterproof matches. I have like, I have these little, little power, I, power kits. That, so they're like, a couple hundred bucks on Amazon and there you can like, you can charge your cell phone for, for a week and they're a flashlight and you can plug in like a fan or something for a day, you know, things like that. So I have two of those. Um, I have a um, uh, little, like a, you know, like a little go bag, some, some medical supplies. And then I have these like MREs that I bought, which, you know, the sad realization about the MREs is that like, you know, us adults would probably eat them and be like, yeah, this is kind of fun. And, but I can't even get my kids to eat like pizza. Like, so I don't know what, my kids would just die. That would just be it. And then we would probably have to eat them like a Carmack McCarthy novel or something like that. But, sure. But, but that's, you know, that's as far as I go. I don't, I don't have the, like, you know, the shelter and the like, um, but I do, you know, I do think about it all a lot. It's definitely something that's on my mind. Yeah. It's, it's, 
it's hard to know how extensive to go. I remember reading uh, Neil Strauss's book, Emergency, and mm-hmm. he, you know, he went as far as to get citizenship in St. Kitts, I think it is, where like it's e- basically you buy land and you're a citizen there and became sort of uh, accredited as an emergency worker so that he would have special access to things that the normal public aren't allowed to in the case of a emergency. But it's also, you know, it, it's also daunting. And then it also like it seems as though over the last two months, what's sort of come over the masses or at least the people that I've seen in L.A. is the idea of like, okay, we're probably not going to run out of food and we're pro you know, rule of law is probably going to stay in place. And there's a good chance that like, like everyone sort of calmed down, but that first two weeks were, were, I mean, it was the worst version of humanity, right? Like the hoarding and and everything. Yeah. It it got scary. It really was. And I think that, yeah, I mean, I think that it's, it's funny because I think that it's, there's the moment in the beginning where there's the worst part of humanity. And then there's the moment like when things calm down and maybe it's just because things did calm down where you see the best of humanity. Like, you know, my neighborhood, we all kind of put together, like I, I, cause I had like been aware of the stuff. I had ordered a couple of N95 masks and like some glo- a bunch of gloves and things. And like, and I was like, what the fuck do I need these for? Like, I'm not going anywhere. And so we like donated a bunch of people in our neighborhood, like, donated stuff to the local fire department, like uh, to the, to, to UCLA, which, which within itself to me was probably one of the most insane moments of this whole thing, because we lit, this is America, this is Los Angeles and the doctors and the fire, fire and the police men and women don't have supplies. PPE supplies. It was just mind boggling to me. But I think that like, we've now started to see like, you know, people coming together, like there's a, an organization that I found on Instagram called You, Me, We, and they're taking supplies and giving them to homeless people downtown, downtown LA, which is really amazing. And, and I, you know, like people clapping for the, for the frontline workers. A friend of mine started this, this organization called Frontline. She's a nurse in San Francisco and, and they have been collecting money and helping small businesses make food for, for doctors and nurses. And so I think you've seen, you know, you see the, and you see the initial aspect of it. And then you see, I think the, the people that are um, are much kinder and and thoughtful and so on come together. The part that I think has been most mind boggling to me recently is these these I mean like Elon Musk this week like saying free America like like screw you like you're not you're not one of the doctors out there having to save people's lives like and all these people that have been pushing to open up the country again when you have doctors that are dying and nurses that are dying like that to me is the part that is just the most mind boggling. Well, I'm fascinated. Right. And Elon is such a, basically in a weird way, he kind of lives up to the lore of him. Right. Because just when you think that you can start getting behind him, he gives you a reason to hate him. And this is, Oh my God. He's yeah. Yeah. This is such an example of it. Yeah. And no, it's, it's totally true. Like he'd like, you know, one minute, I, I think he's a, I think he's a really deranged individual, honestly. Like I think that there, there has to be something clinically wrong with someone like that for them to one minute to, first of all, like all the stuff that happened with the like deep sea, di- the divers, the, the cave rescuers, like that stuff was just insane. In Thailand? Yeah, in Thailand. But, but with this, like, you know, one minute he's tweeting like, this is so stupid and overblown. The next minute he's like tweeting like, about a drug that he knows nothing about and how it could solve it 
now he's tweeting about then he's tweeting about how he is going to make ventilators, which he's apparently made none of. And now he's tweeting Open America again because because he wants his his um, uh, his plant in 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 upstate California to to start going again. It's like or downstate or wherever the hell it is. But it's just like it's it, it is a perfect example of just an arrogant person who thinks that they a know better than everything else, everyone else, and b is not thinking about the people that are affected by this. Do you think that the people, the 62,000 people who have lost like loved ones are, are like, yeah, let's open up America again. Like, no, there, you know, do you think that the tens of thousands of doctors that you see um, in news reports that have like marks on their face, cause they've, they've been walking around in 95 masks for, for the past two months, you think there's no, they're all out there saying like, this is really, really scary and really bad. And we need to be thoughtful about this. And, and, you know, I don't know. It's, he, it's someone like him that, that really bums me out, honestly. This is going to be my attempt at, at wrapping up a perfect Nick Bilton package. So forgive me. But if you look at people like him and at our president, and also the people you've chronicled in your books, like Ross Ulbricht, who created the Silk Road, and your boy Jack Dorsey, and all these types. They, What is it? It seems like there's a common thread amongst people like this and many others who it's like, a I don't know, sociopathy is probably not the right word. Maybe uh, it's uh, uh, my friend Ryan Holiday talks about it, like malignant narcissism. But it's like this weird skill that they all have that in a weird way aids them in rising to the levels in which they rise to? Like, is there any correlation that you see? It's interesting. It's like such a fascinating thing because when you think about these characters, they all are somewhat the same. Like, I always think about the story I heard about um, about Uber with Travis Kalanick. So, Uber, and this is documented in Mike Isaac's book, and it's documented in some news stories and so on. And I heard it from from some other folks that were uh, were, were were there at the time. But there was a, a point when Uber was expanding, and they were trying to do so at a massive global uh, pace to beat Lyft, right, and other you know competitors based out of uh, Asia and so on. So they were trying to get into these markets and become the the Uber of Uber, you know, um, all over the world before anyone else could come in and, and do that. And they had gone to Brazil and in Brazil, um, the, there, you know, a lot of, a lot of crime in certain parts of, uh, as there is in a lot of parts of South America, um, there is, um, the, and so Uber had been, um, taking, because a lot of people don't have credit cards and attach to their phone and so on. Uber had been taking, um, uh, they've been taking cash, right? Uh, so people could pay for their Uber in cash, like a taxi. So what happens is the Uber drivers start getting killed um, and they are being strangled um, by people in the backseat and then their cash is being taken. And there's this big meeting and someone presents, one of these data analysts at Uber presents to the to the executive team um, 
the data where they can actually see the, the, the strangulations happening because the car is moving forward, backwards and forwards really, really fast and braking as the person's being strangled by someone who's stealing $100 or whatever. And at the end of the meeting, the, the, one of the execs says, we have to stop taking cash in, in Brazil. And the response from the upper management from Travis and the company was, it's going to slow growth if we do that. And I think like that to me is something that is, I, you have to have a certain mindset to be able to think like that. Um, you have, for, for Elon Musk, you have to have a certain mindset to be able to think, oh, I'm only going to, I only care about my business performing really well. Uh, I don't care about all the people who have lost loved ones. Could you, I mean, it wouldn't be hard for Elon Musk to be like, hey, look, I totally get that, um, that it's, this is probably not a, a point of view that a lot of people support, but you know, I've done the math and I think like, and I feel so terrible for the people who've lost loved ones and I'm so appreciative of the doctors and so on. Um, but maybe we should think about opening up America a little bit so that we can, you know, start to get the economy. Like, it's not hard to say things like that. Instead, it's just this arrogant, like, I know best, go fuck yourself. And I don't care about anyone else. And I think that that, that is, that, that, that a lot of these executives, these tech executives, um, they, that, have this similar personality type, they all kind of respond to things in that way. Like Jack Dorsey, I just have a huge feature in Vanity Fair, this issue about uh, what's going on at Twitter with Jack Dorsey and so on. And Jack Dorsey thinks that, um, CEO of Twitter, he thinks that um, Twitter is, the, all the vitriol and hate on Twitter has nothing to do with Twitter. It's That's just society and that Twitter is a mirror for society. Yeah. And I think that that is such an, a, a bullshit way of looking at things because it's it, it just is it's just not reality like people are not assholes on instagram like they are on twitter because the platform has been, was designed differently it is all about the user interface and how people interact with it and um and I think that it's a lot of this stuff is a cop out by these folks. And I think it's just a certain kind of mindset that says, I have not, I didn't do that. Someone else did. Well, it becomes like the, the ultimate question, right? And it's, it's a landscape in which we've never um, had to navigate because something like Facebook, like there's never been a system in place that can literally be a pipeline to, I don't even know, over 2 billion people on Facebook, 3 billion. It's all, yeah, it's almost, it's like two two 2.7 billion or something like that now. It's such a challenging question because you think about like, and and I love Kara Swisher and Scott Galloway who who debate this uh, to the ends where they they sort of speak about how it's it's a private company, so hiding under the guise of the First Amendment doesn't exactly work. And then someone like Jack, who has some done some policing, it then becomes a weird gray area because as soon as you sort of put your hand in you can never take it back out again right yeah i, I so i have this philosophy and i would love to hear your thought on this I, I have this i don't believe so i believe that that the downfall of america and this is not a popular popular thought that that i that you know there are certain people who agree with me and certain people who don't and but I believe that the downfall of America as, as the number one superpower is going to be the thing that made America the number one superpower, and that is freedom. I believe that there has to be limits to it. I don't believe that – and there are limits to it. This is the part that's crazy, right? 
you can you can go out and buy an AR-15, right? But in some states, you have to. There's a there's a there are background checks. In some states, there are ten day waits, like California. You cannot go out and buy a machine gun because after 1963, they made them illegal, right? Um, you cannot go out and buy. Um, uh, you you can't go buy a nuclear bomb, right? So. You could buy a handgun, uh, and in some places you can buy a thousand of them, right? But there are like that's one example. Like you cannot walk into a movie theater and yell fire because if someone runs out and gets hurt, you can be sued for that because there's no fire. And I think that one of the problems with this country is that we think that we should have the right to do whatever the fuck we want, whenever the fuck we want. And that's why you have these people with their American flag standing there in front of these nurses and doctors saying, open up America again, without any regard for other people because it's their freedom. It's the thing that they deserve. And I think that the reality is, it like it goes back to what you said earlier with Ross Ulbricht and the Silk Road um, in American Kingpin. He believed this like libertarian philosophy that Elon Musk and Peter Thiel and all those guys believe that you – you should be able to do whatever you want and it, and it's not your responsibility how it how it affects other people that they can do whatever they want so if my neighbor wants to play music till five in the morning at, at, at the, as loud as it can possibly go like I should own earplugs it's not my it's it's his life he should do whatever he wants and I should do whatever I want and if I want to paint my house bright purple then then so be it but I don't think that that actually takes into account that there is it there are repercussions to your actions. If you, like with the Silk Road, when people were buying drugs on that website that were 14 years old and didn't know how to take those drugs and they were dying, that that isn't their fault. That's the fault of someone like Ross Ulbricht who, who said it was okay for them, for a 14-year-old to take any amount of drugs that they want and not try to do anything to, to stop that. And I think that, um, I, you know, I don't know. I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this too, honestly. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a great question. And I think it's the question that anyone who is smart and uh, around our age and also uh, has any relation to media and consumes social media has. And I think that yeah. I have to remember that Twitter is, it, to me, is not a, a great signpost of the general consensus of the public because I heard some spec of like, it's really only 10% of people. And me, as a left-leaning, er, as a, a probably honestly more centrist Democrat, but left-leaning in almost every regard, I could mm -hmm. as easily be canceled for a tweet that I write from yep. the right as I could from the left. Yep, exactly. And yep. that that for me seems like a sort of breakdown on both sides. And I, and so I I find that we're in a very very specific time. I agree with you. I used this example before, but when you talk about like, um, you know, Scott Galloway always cites Jeff Bezos and how he's worth $130 billion because he never cashes in his stock and thus he never pays capital gains tax and he just takes a line of credit to live off of from JP Morgan, writes off the interest on it, and thus is able to accrue more and more wealth, but in theory, never kind of paying tax on it. And my answer to that is it's not illegal. He did what any private business should do, which he figured out a very smart way to game the system, which is not illegal. But as soon as the government goes, great job, you got us, 
But now we're going to shift to sort of reflect the new times and all your fun little new tricks you figured out. People go, you're moving the line. And I'm like, <laughs> but you fucked us. And like, yeah. And, and you'll game us again and then we'll adjust. But government will always move slower than private business. So I agree with you. And I think it's, you know, it's, it's a really tough, it's an argument we'll have forever. Right. Which is like, I, one last thing is that what I'm finding more and more with um, some reasonable Republicans, which there are, and with the reasonable people, like-minded people, like like I feel that that I know, it's as though we're 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 looking for the same ends. We just believe deeply that it will be achieved in a much different way. And for someone like me, it's through regulation and government and a and a belief in in a healthy amount of government, not an insane amount, but that government can and will work. And for the other side, they want the same result, but through very little to no government. And that doesn't seem reasonable. No, and I totally agree. And I think that the, you know, the problem is that we, we are in a place where talking about these things on social media, it's, it is proven time and time again, uh, not to work, uh, ever period. Um, and I don't care if you go from 140 characters to 280 or, 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 or anything. Um, I think you're just, it's, it's, it's performative in front of an, a, a, a crowd. It's, it's who can be funniest and get the most interactions. It's who can be, you know, more bombastic. And, and I think that, um, yeah, it's, it's just that they, what, what I think is, is difficult when you look at the technological aspect of all of this is that it doesn't, um, it doesn't work. You know, I think it, it's great to be able to like share pictures of your bread making and like, and you know, your kid walking and, and like whatever you're doing to kind of, it, you know, it's been great to see the uplifting moments in during, during coronavirus. It's actually been really bad to follow the news during coronavirus. I remember in the beginning, I was glued to my phone literally like just couldn't put it down was would read anything i could get my hands on and then uh i started to realize like oh this i'm not i don't feel i feel like a i feel like shit when i read this stuff right and and now i've stopped and i still i still read at night funnily enough before i go to bed which is just because i'm so burned out by then and i can't really think of anything else i'll read the news but and hopefully i'll kind of wean myself off that a little bit but i think that um that that the the technological things that we consume on a daily basis um, and interact with do not make us feel better. Um, they are fleeting moments that do, but it's like it's almost like the here's an analogy. It's almost like if you went out for dinner every single night to like a different restaurant and like maybe two of the restaurants throughout the whole year were actually good, and most of them you got like food poisoning from. But you're like, wait, but I might find a good one in there. Like that's, that's what's, it's like using social media. Yeah. In my it, opinion. It, it's so, it, it's so ingrained in us and it's, you know, it's interesting, like, and, and I would love to hear your opinion on this. I, you know, I've had, I've been lucky enough to have people like you and like David Pluff on the podcast and uh, who was, for anyone who doesn't know, was Obama's campaign manager and actually was on the board yeah, at great. Uber brilliant guy and people like uh 
my friend Dylan Lowy, who was Biden's uh, speechwriter and whatnot, and a lot of people who share my politics and the feedback that I was getting was like, it feels pretty one-sided. And I said, okay, so I have a mutual friend um, between, uh, I, you know, listen, I, I'm not a, a big name dropper, but I'm going to say it, Nick, uh, Bob Saget, okay? I'm a big deal, and I'm friends with Bob Saget. <laughs> And we're both we're both friends with Dave Rubin. And uh, and I had Dave on the podcast and, you know, nice enough guy. And and we met at, at Bob's wedding. But what I would say is, while there's no way you could walk away from that interview thinking that he and I agreed on much, the feedback that I got from many people that are fans of his and from the right was, I respect that you heard him out. Like, I respect that you had him on and that you engaged in what was a thoughtful conversation where you both gave each other respect. Because I think the feeling on the right or of those people was, you guys won't even hear it. You're closing us out. And I I'm interested to hear your take on this because I, you know, I, I do find myself hearing that sometimes. Well, it's interesting I, I, that you bring this up. Um, a friend of um, of the, our family, uh, not going to drop a name because just, you know, it's Donald <laughs> Trump. It's Donald Trump. I'm sorry. I'm just Good kidding. for you. Uh, uh, could you imagine if I was friends with Donald Trump? I would just be like, delete. Um, uh, so a, fr a friend of ours, uh, someone we know well, um, is a staunch Republican, super pro-Trump, um, just, you know, in it to win it. Um, and I was debating with him and I figured like, this will be a, a fun, healthy debate. And um, we both read a lot. We both are embedded in the news. Like, you know, you have your side, I have mine. Like maybe there'll be some meeting ground in the middle. And what I, what I found after several hours of this, of a conversation recently was that the way that it was actually so fascinating. So the way that that people on the right, and I say this because it is predominantly people on the right um, do this, is that they can find the one example where it doesn't, the thing doesn't add up. There could be 99 examples where it does, and they'll find the one and use that and cite that. And I found that, you know, the the it, what was funny was as we were debating in person and I was getting more and more frustrated because this person just kept citing this one thing <laughs> that, that they would in, in anything, whether it was abortion or guns or money or corporate tax or you name it. And so uh, we actually ended up moving our conversation to text message and I, and it proved to be so much better because I would take screenshots of all the statistics and, the, and, and that was the only way I could actually debate with him. But Long story short, like we've actually been able to realize that there are certain things that we have in common and there are a lot of things we don't. But what I think that that has happened over the past, I blame the media just as much as social media, but over the past several years has been that we have been forced to only talk about the things we don't have in common. And um, and I think that that's, that's been essentially why we find ourselves in this place. But when you have someone like, like Ruben on your podcast, or I have like a conservative on mine, or whatever. Um, I think it's um, you get you see that that there is conversation to be had, even with the most extreme people. You know, I mean, I wouldn't have Alex Jones on anything because I think <laughs> right. he's just a, a psychopathic lunatic, um, and um, he's like a true sociopath. But but I would have 
um, you know, uh, Joe Rogan on, even though I don't agree with a lot of the stuff that he says, you know, or I would, you know, talk to him, whatever, not on my show. Like I would talk to him, like I would talk to a lot of people that I think that, um, uh, that are staunchly conservative, that I don't agree with most of their political views. Um, because I think that the goal is to try to find the things in the middle. But that's interesting, right? Because I find like, and we talked about this on the last pod, like Joe Rogan, Eric Weinstein, Brent, Brent Weinstein, Jordan Peterson, like they're a part of this thing called the intellectual dark web, which are like these libertarian leaning um, conservative. It's, it's a big mix. Like Eric Weinstein's yep. actually very left, but like Joe Rogan, while like some of his views might be conservative, he basically endorsed Bernie on his podcast. Right. So it's, it's, I'm interested that that's your perception of him because he also, and he's talked about this. He's like, I have my beliefs and yet I've voted almost left uh, the majority left on almost everything uh, when given the choice. Well, I think part of it is that he is someone who, um, uh, who, you know, like I remember he, this is just one example that the, he was, he had someone on talking about like um, he, guns and he was to come back to that again, but he, um, he was saying, Oh, you know, he was saying, look at London where they have, um, this is a, a while ago, this conversation happened, but look at London where they have, um, they have just as many um, the, uh, knife deaths as they do gun deaths um, now because they've banned guns and more people are stabbing people. That statistic was wrong. Actually, what it was was that knife deaths have stayed the same and gun deaths have fallen because of the stringent rules around guns. And it's like it's like those kinds of arguments that I think are so frustrating to listen to because they are – it's just a different way of – of a conservative argument. I, and I, you know, I appreciate that he wanted to both vote for Bernie and not, and not Trump, but, but like, you know, like Ben Shapiro, like he, he takes so much pride in the fact that he can prove you wrong by finding that one statistic. And like, that's not a, what, what is the fucking point of that? Like literally what is that offering society that your ego is bigger because you were right in this one in like, cause you memorized this one number, like, give me a break. Like it does nothing. It does absolutely nothing except make that person feel better about themselves. I think that's true. And I think a lot of people like Shapiro and others in that respect. And, and it's funny. And I asked Steve this at the end of my podcast. I said, do you think that you would be as emboldened in your beliefs if it hadn't revealed a new income stream for you? And, <laughs> <laughs> and he took a, that's funny. He kind of, and he had a he had a pretty good answer, which was like, like most things, I gave over to something I truly believed in, became more myself, allowed sort of my true feelings to come out, wrapped up in what I do, which is comedy and sort of an irreverent look at life. He said, and basically by being more true to myself, it allowed for you know me to do better professionally, which I can see that metaphor slightly, but. Yeah, I mean, uh, inevitably, right? It's like left or right. If people are making money, putting on a certain show, they're inclined to keep that show going, which is why. Well, yeah, who's who's a bigger example of this than um, Tucker Carlson? Ten years ago, wasn't a conservative like this. Like it just it it's his ratings go up the more audacious the stuff coming out of his mouth is, and so like and he makes more money the more 
his ratings go up. So it's a perfect example of that. And I think, look, I'm not going to just pick on on Fox News. I think I think CNN is an, another example of it. MSNBC, like I think, you know, some of, look. I think that that um, Rachel Maddow, like great person, same political. She's a little more left than I would like to be, but like, but pretty similar political beliefs around immigration and all these important topics that I care deeply about. And yet, like this, the, her reporting of the Russia stuff and things like that, like it, it, it was just, it was just the other side of Fox. Like, and I think in my, in my opinion, like in some respects, was irresponsible. And so I don't think it's just Fox that does it. Fox is, of course, the most extreme and, and audacious about it. But I think in general, the media, the media is just is the thing that is driving people apart more than anything. It's like that's the kindling, and then social media becomes the. Um, the wood that we plonk on top and, and it keeps that fire raging between people. Bill Maher had something to said something to the, the effect of like, don't give like, don't give Donald Trump uh reason to call you fake news. And it wasn't. Mm-hmm. And it was just kind of like, because we're all left or right falling victim to the need for like clickbait and to make sure you don't turn that channel at the end of a, or at the beginning of a commercial break and I think you're right. I think it's insidious on both sides and it reveals itself. And, you know, it's like you and I, and I think many people who listen to this can be slightly, you know, have a filter between them and their news source. But, you know, I'm constantly talking my mom off the ledge at 75 for what she just mm-hmm. watched. Mm-hmm. Same with my mother-in-law. Same exact thing. Yeah. It, so she walks in the house every day and says, oh, my God, did you know that that they're going to that you know there's going to be uh, state police out and the, the 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 national guard and they'll shoot you if you walk out of your house and I'm like where the hell did you see that right. you know and it's like it's just these extreme news sites and things that she sees in t- television that are just trying to make sure you don't turn that television off and she falls for it i have a, a question for you has any of this corona stuff have you like had any like grand epiphanies about like things that you want to do or don't want to do or like you know the things that you are doing differently in life as a result of it like this this kind of reflective existential moment or you know it's funny it's all um, my realizations have all been quite cliche which is just like the hustling and like the never satiated need for, for power and prestige and financial security is you know, it, it's it's truly something that will never be satiated. There is no finish line. And it's like, this was, in theory, my greatest fear, right? Like, we've all been disabled, except it's sort of like there's this, not for all of us, right? Because some of us are, are pretty um, permanently or for a long time will be disabled from what happened. But inevitably, it's like, what if you couldn't do the thing that brought you security and brought you meaning as a person. And so it's allowed me to double down on the things that I always knew were important, but that I would, uh, you know, uh, be, I would get distracted and lose sight of at times. But it just reminds me too of like, I just hope, I don't know. It felt like a weird reckoning. It felt like we had all become so divided. And and unfortunately, this is being so politicized. It might only continue. But I just remember thinking of like, if you're, you know, uh, wearing an AOC shirt, but the doctor who's working on you because you have COVID is a Trump guy, like, do you give a shit? 
Or like if your neighbor lets you borrow a paper towel, but they're, you know, a strong lib and you're on the right, like, does this kind of, I, I like the equalizing level of it and just reminding us how, you know, human we are. I've always felt like if you looked at the uh, continental United States, that the coasts were the arms and middle America was the chest, but we were all connected to one body. And if there's an infection in the kidneys, the arms are going to die too and vice versa. Mm -hmm. Like it'll mm -hmm. all connect. We were not, you know, we can't separate. So we, we kind of have to figure it out together. Yeah, I mean, I think that I think that's true. I think that there, that there are going to be factions on the extreme sides of things that are going to push for, you know, opening up this, the country and doing this, that and the other. Um, but I think that at the end of the day, um, uh, you're going to have um, uh, you're going to have people that are um, I think it will bring more people together than it will um uh, then it will tear apart, you know? Um, and I think that that's, that that's the silver lining of all this. I mean, what it's done for the earth, of course, is a silver lining. Um, you know, the fact that like, you know, it's so fascinating to me is, is, is how everything becomes a new normal so quickly. Like yesterday I had to go drive somewhere to drop my car off and I, um, and I, you know, you, you see people now wearing masks and, when and at first when you saw someone wearing a mask it was so bizarre yeah and it now, was trouble now you're like why is that person not wearing a mask you know like how, like that's something that changed that it's like how things become the normal but one thing that i found that i find so crazy is how bizarre it is to see a plane in the sky do you ever see do you is that, is that when does do you have the same thing like you used to look up and you would see planes all the time all the time um uh but now it's like if I look up and see a plane in the sky, I'm like, what the fuck? Like, who is that? Where, who's on that? Like, where is it going? You know? That's it's, so it's, true. It's so, it's so true. But the reason I say that is because I think that like, you know, we're seeing all these instances where the globe is doing better. The earth is like, if I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but like, if, if you wanted to come up with one, like it's the, the mother nature developed COVID-19. It didn't really want to kill us. It just wanted us to go inside for a little bit so it could like take a fresh breath of air. And uh, and we've all stopped, like factories have stopped, planes have stopped, cars have stopped. Like it's, um, you know, it's uh, it's making the earth better, right? I, I think so too. Yeah, I mean, it's funny you say that where, you know, where we live, we're not far from LAX airport. And I would, you know, I drive down to Manhattan Beach a lot where my in-laws live and you can see the planes exiting, taking off from LAX and you can almost time it at like every 90 seconds. Normally a plane mm. would take off. And mm. now if you see one, you know, every half hour, you're lucky. Wow. And wow. it's, it's a very... It's a different it's a different experience, including driving, which in L.A. Yeah. has been like a new frontier. I, I keep telling anyone I, I see, I'm like, just go to Malibu in 20 minutes and see what that feels like, because it's no, it's wild. It's totally told. It's just it's such a wild experience. I I've done it like I've driven out to the beach just to get some fresh air and like. I can get it used to take an hour. I can get there in, in like 20, 25 minutes. Like, um, uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's totally mind boggling. So what do you think about, like, I try to, 
the the one thing, and and there are are, are plenty of of criticisms to direct towards the president, and yet the one thing I try to that that keeps popping up in my head is like he could have handled it better, and yet we're in the same place that the whole world is, or for the most part, not you know excluding Taiwan and like two or three other places who who got ahead of it. But it's like it seems like we. Everyone had a similar reaction. We we kind of all reacted at the same moment. And so it's like the one thing I try to remember is like, could he have done more or and I'm sure you can elucidate this for me. Or is it just that we you know, the whole world was late to this? It's funny. My sister is she lives in L.A. too, and she's, you know, same political beliefs as us and like. The other night where we've been, I've been, um, one thing I've been doing a lot of during quarantine is baking bread, of course, like every other crazy person out there. <laughs> like I've, I'm like obsessively making sourdoughs. I used, I've been doing it for a long time and and I stopped for a while and now I started again and like falling back in love with it. And it's been really amazing. You're but very my sister's Instagram, been doing you're very Instagram basic, Nick. I hate to break it to you with I, this sourdough. I, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know. Totally basic. Uh, basic sourdough. Huh? Huh? I like it. Sorry. I like it. Um, um, but we were, uh, we were talking the other night, just like uh, on over FaceTime as we were both working on our, our bread. And I said to her, um, at one point, um, what, uh, she said to me, don't you think Trump's like done an okay job? And I, and I was like, what, what did you just say? And she's like, you know, like he shut down, like he stopped letting planes in from China. And I was like, what are you talking about? He has not done an okay job. Like, first of all, he, I'm just going to go off for a second here. Please. Sure, he may have shut down planes from China. That had nothing to do with coronavirus because at the same time that he he stopped allowing Chinese to come in, he was out there saying that the whole thing was a hoax at his rallies, that it was, that there had only been one death, this, that, and the other. The, the, the shutting down of planes from China um, was about, uh, was just another leverage point in his, trade war with his ridiculous trade war with them he is he shut down and defunded the the major portion of the cdc that focuses on pandemics two years ago because he didn't think it was important he you know right when the trump administration came into office they they did like mock drills for exactly this like they do drills in the government for everything and they failed so dismally and didn't do any of the things that they were supposed to do to kind of fix it. We didn't have storage facilities of PPE equipment. You can blame that on Obama, but Obama left office three and a half years ago. Like you, it is not his fault. I have, I can blame Obama for a lot of stuff and I have a lot of gripes with that administration, but like, don't even try to blame PPE uh, not being available um, on, on a previous administration. He, he was out there. One of the things that I think is was the most disgusting of everything he did was bragging about how well the stock market was doing when it was bouncing back, and then bragging about the ratings of his of his pressers. Like, give me a fucking break! Like that is just insanity. Like he he has, you know, it's just I I don't think I think that the only thing that he did, and he did it because he was pressured to do it that he did well was was to to implement the kind of stay at home orders 
but even then, like he like he goes on TV and he says, you know, like people should stay at home because we don't want to have more deaths. And then he goes and he um, he'll tweet like, you know, about help telling the the freedom fighters, quote unquote, in in like Wisconsin to go out and like push for their their state to be to be opened. Like, I just I think that the administration is is it's just diabolical the way they've handled pretty much everything. Uh, this being the pinnacle of it, honestly. Yeah. It's, it's funny. My buddy had a great line, which was, what do you want to be liberated back to the fucking job you hate? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Running back to your cubicle. Well, it's, it's so fascinating. It's like, you know, you, you, you have these, what's so crazy to me, um, is that he, he, when you look at the the polling numbers and look, they could be off by a little bit here and there, but like w- one thing that's so obvious is like right before this happened, you had 3.5% unemployment, right? Trump's approval ratings were like 46%. Um, now you have almost 20% in, uh, unemployment. You have 60, 62,000 people who are dead. Um, uh, 30%, 30 million unemployment claims since a month ago. Um, a, Four trillion dollar deficit, uh, and his approval ratings at forty three percent. So it's like there's no, it's like what that means nothing. And then I'm gonna I'm literally about to lose my shit about Wall Street. Like don't even fucking cite the Wall Street Wall Street numbers and the Dow and the S and P and this that and the other as an example of how well the economy is doing because it's completely the opposite. If like the S&P rose 13% in the past month, it is the biggest gain since 1987 and yet 30 million people have lost their jobs. And then today Amazon came out with their their quarterly earnings report and they um, said that their $4 billion in profit, they are going to use every single penny of it to try to make safer warehouses and fight the COVID-19 issues and even probably tap into more of their own past profits to help fight this and to help make um, the warehouses and the delivery drivers safer and so on and so forth. And their stock fell 7.5%. Like Wall Street, don't cite Wall Street as an indicator of how well the economy is doing because it is the biggest crock of bullshit to do that. And then you've got like when you when you talk to people at Wall Street, I'm sorry, I'm almost done. I just have to rant here for a second. Let it go. When you Nick. talk to people on Wall Street and they're like, well, the, you know, the market is um is 40%, I'm sorry, it's is um it's 4 to 6 months ahead of uh ahead. So you really why you're seeing all the numbers go up is because and why the Dow is at 24, 25 now um is because it's where the society will be in 6 months. If that crock of bullshit that came out of Chase Bank, because that's where that came from, was true, right? Was it Chase or Goldman? I forget. But if that crock of bullshit was true, then the stock market would have started plummeting six months ago before the coronavirus hit. So it's just, it's complete and utter nonsense. And for Trump to brag about how the economy is doing so well based on the stock market numbers, it's complete garbage. Most stock profits in the past year have gone back to corporate buybacks, which have gone to make the rich richer than they have ever been before. And it has done nothing for all those people that are unemployed now. That's it. That's my um, shtick. Well done. I wish, uh, hold on, hold on. I don't, know, I don't know if you can hear that, Nick, but I wish we were in person so you could see it in its full, you know, regalia. Yeah. Well, it's just, it's just, it's just, it's just why vote against yourself. Like you're voting 
against these, like Trump said drain the swamp and all these things. Like all he did was he just brought in his own people. He's pat himself on the bat. Jared Kushner is the, the biggest wet noodle on earth. Like him going out this week, talking about how like it's done. We won. Like what on God's green earth are you talking about? Like, I can't, can't but, even. But it's, you know, it, first of all, it's interesting, right? Because I, I remember Scott Galloway talking about this and, and they were citing those numbers, which you just did, which was like 43 or 46% approval. And he's like, right. But if you look at George Bush's numbers after 9-11 and, and you can, you know, you can compare this to being a wartime president. That mm-hmm. people inherently right or left like to ban behind a wartime president, especially when they feel like yep. leadership is good. And I think his approval yep. was like high 80s, low 90s. It was 91 at one point. Right. So like even at 43 or 46, it's actually, you know, less strong than we think. Yeah. But I think, you know, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this. I remember Dave, Dave Rubin bringing this up on the pod and I thought it was a fair assessment because it it reflects something I saw, which he said, you know, I told the Democrats and people on the left early on, he said, I said, be careful of this Russia investigation and be careful of this impeachment and be careful of running to the, to the mattresses at every, you know, at every turn. He said, because if it doesn't bear the fruit that you want, the people that are behind Trump will be behind him more than ever because they're going to be like, you're picking on our boy. You can't fucking give him a break. And I don't care. Yes, his tweets are bad. And yes, all his personal life stuff is bad and blah, blah, blah. But I'm down for him because you guys won't give him a break. And where's the evidence in all your big investigations? And like in a weird way, I I can it make that makes sense to me on some level. I completely agree with it. I completely agree. I think that the the impeachment was 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 it's like a chess game, right? And I think that like that impeachment should have been held and wait and they should have waited to use it to make that move when they knew that they were going to actually get some result from it. And and you know, and I think that it was just there was it was we we know Mitch McConnell is not going to do anything to, to harm Trump because that harms Mitch McConnell, who in my personal opinion is actually the worst human being on earth, but that's another story. Um, but I think that we, it is, it is apparent that we are, um, uh, that we've wasted a lot of the chips we have. And I don't know necessarily how many we have left. And now, now we have this issue where we're now going after Biden because of the sexual harassment issues. And fair enough, like that's that's something that we should be talking about. Why didn't we do that before? Like, why did we do that after the election? A, that's the first thing. And B, like, it's like the Al Franken thing, right? Al Franken was was forced to resign. And yet, like, Brett Kavanaugh got confirmed. Like we we want to like show that we're always better and this that and the other, but we but we we don't actually hold the Republicans to the same account, and I just don't understand. It feels like our energy sh- should be pushed in both directions, if that makes sense. I think so for sure, and I, I think it's it's a tragedy that we lost a voice like Al Franken in the Senate, and I think, yep. and I think that. You know, it, it's interesting, uh, like, 
And anyone with eyes who knows Uncle Joe would tell you that, like, we know that he has a history of gaffing and, and, and there are moments in which where he's he does not compare to the orator that was someone like Obama. But I I'm not sure. And, and maybe I'm mistaken. Maybe I'm looking at it through rose colored glasses. It feels like this weird um, it feels like a right leaning storyline that's that's trying to get pushed into the lexicon of this whole they're propping him up on sticks. He's in full blown dementia. And like, how could you ever vote for this guy? Cause that's what you, the storyline has now become on the right of like, yeah, Joe, not a bad guy. Just can't do it mentally. And I want to be like, Mm -hmm. are you just exacerbating that? Because it just, you know, they're trying to influence the way in which people look at him. Yeah, of course. That's, that's it. It's like, you know, I just think the Republicans are better at this than the Democrats are. And, um, and, you know, I remember right after Trump won, I asking, I don't know if it was David Pluff or somebody I had on the show asking them, like, what, you know, what is, um, do we go, do we go high when they go low? Is that really the way we do it? And like them saying, yeah, that's the only way to do this. And it hasn't worked out. Like, I, like, let's take some, some bats and some knives to the knife fight, like, rather than, you know, standing there with a flower and saying, peace, true love. It's like. I don't know. I don't know. Oh, man. Yeah. It's, it's so what about let's talk about your boy who you you basically I mean, you wrote a book about hatching Twitter, which was the entire origin of, of Twitter. But like Jack Dorsey is, you know, he was about to go to what moved to Africa. Now he's not leaving. People are always saying that he's going to get booted. Like, what you know, what are you thinking about your boy, Jack? Well, um, I did a big story for VF about him that came out this week about how he is running two companies. He's the only person on the S&P 500 that has two companies with market caps over $5, million, $5 billion, um, where he runs two companies at the same time. He doesn't actually run them because he works from home two days a week and is on the road most of the time before coronavirus. Doing and what? What on the road? He goes to like the sat. It's kind of weird, honestly. He goes to the satellite offices of um, Twitter, like these little and square, these little offices in the um, in the middle of nowhere, like in you know Africa and um, and so on. And and he he just does like these little Q and As with employees, and then poses for selfies, and then reposts the selfies on Twitter, and and it's like kind of not what the CEO of one of the most important uh, media networks on the planet should be doing, but he does them and he goes on silent retreats, gone on two 10 day silent retreats. And he's, he works from home on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And he, you know, he has these weird rituals that he does, which don't even add up. Like he says that he goes into a, a hot, into a hot sauna that's 220 degrees. He, he does that. Uh, for 45 minutes a day for, in 15 minute increments, which that's if only he did, good. He, well, but it's not, it's not, it's impossible. 220 degrees is boiling, and the world record holders for, um, uh, for hot tub, there's actually a, sorry, not hot tub, a sauna. The world sauna record holders, um, in there was, there's a championship where you see how long you can stay in a hot sauna for. It was only a few degrees hotter, 230 degrees. And two, these two Russian guys that went in, one of them died after six minutes. So like there's – the reason I bring this up is – and I bring this up in the story is because it's like there are a lot of things that don't add up that aren't accurate about the 
his lifestyle and him running these two companies and so on. And I think investors are kind of, they've, they're a little sick of it too. And I think when you look at the, the stock performance, um, again, pre-corona um, over the past um, five years, four and a half years since Jack came back, like, you know, Facebook has had scandal after scandal after scandal and their, their performance has gone up like 120%. And Twitter hasn't, they've had a couple of little scandals with like bots and so on, but nothing even remotely close to Facebook. And and they have Donald Trump on their platform and yet their stock has fallen by six, 7%. And it's, you know, the user growth has been nominal and and um, especially compared to like places like Facebook and Instagram and Snap and so on. And I think that like the, you know, Jack uses the argument of like the cult of the founder that he helped found these companies. So therefore he should be the guy running them both to say that. And I think that Wall Street is like, okay, but you know, the numbers don't necessarily add up and we actually don't think you should be the one running Twitter. We think that there should be like a real adult doing it. And so I think that he is, I think he's a nice, I don't think he's a bad guy. I think he's a nice guy. I think he's thoughtful. I think he's ruthless in the boardroom um, and very, very sh shrewd and good at what he does in the boardroom. But I think he's also afraid to make changes. If Twitter is largely the same as a product it was today. It is today as it was 15, you know, in 2006, 2007 when it first started. And and I think that um, the, the vitriol on that platform and the way it is used um, is, is the result of of it not being it, it not being run properly as a company and the product not being adapted properly and um, and so I think that um, there's I, I I from the reporting I've done uh, there are a lot of hedge fund guys that that really do want Jack out of there and Wall Street guys and um, and I think they'll start um, they'll start pushing for that more and more um, as the year comes to a close. You know, dealing with these ultra powerful people like Jack and, and, you know, the reporting you did for American Kingpin. And do you, have you ever been, or has anyone uh, sort of attempted to intimidate you to maybe not include something in a story? Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to think of an example of when that happened um, recently. Um, but yeah, I mean, they, you know, they like, there's people that, it's usually like bigger companies and they're, they're comms people that are like, if you run the story, like you're going to be wrong. We're going to, we're going to show that you're wrong. Um, it, it's like, it's things like that. And I think that, um, and then of course, you know, I've had instances where like, I remember a PR guy at Google once lied to me and said, that's, that story's wrong. And I'm like, pretty sure that story's right. And he's like, no, it's wrong. You're going to look like an idiot. And then we ran the story and then Google had to like put out a comment or whatever. And I said to the guy, I thought you said it was wrong. He goes, I had to try. And I was like, are you fucking kidding? Like, that's, to that's so fucked up. Like, so there's, there's things like that that have happened. Um, I, I got, I did get nervous, you know, before some stories have, have, have gone out, like, um, some pretty big ones. Um, I like was nervous ones? before. Like there was one on, um, I had a piece uh, on Kevin Systrom um, about him uh, um, uh, lying in an SEC and um, uh, hearing about his sale to Instagram to to, to Facebook, and um, it was like a big deal. You know, it was going to lead to investigations and so on. And um, 
And I didn't know how Facebook was going to react to it. So uh, that one was a little nerve wracking. Turned out that they were fine and did, didn't do much. Um, there was, you know, when when American Kingpin came out, like I knew I was going to get some heat and backlash from the, the Travis, sorry, the Travis, the um, uh, the supporters of Ross Ulbricht. When the Twitter book came out, I assumed, you know, I'm taking on these billionaires, like they're going to like leave a dead horse head, uh, uh, you know, on my front lawn. But, right. you know, I think at the end of the day, someone said to me, like, most of these guys are just, they just don't want, they don't want to get into a, a bigger riff with you. They want to be on your, on your good side. So they just like, they just kind of go straight through it. Um, and then I think that like, there's been instances where um, I have, you know, written about people that I'm friends with that I've had to end up writing about. And that's not, that's not that easy, but you, you know, you, it's, it's the job. Cause you were sort of friends with Jack when you started writing the book. I mean, you told that great yeah. story where it, when you told him that was sort of the rift. Yeah, it was. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't know if he was really, if we were really friends, like I think that we were friends, but I don't know if that was for, because we were friends or because it was, it was going to benefit him in some way, you know, um, having the New York times reporter that covered his company, like be on his good side. But, um, uh, but in the end, you know, it didn't account for much because I wrote all the things that happened. And, um, uh, and I'm trying to think of like other examples of this. Cause I know there's been a ton. Um, uh, I've had moments where like, um, I remember once I, I wrote something about, um, oh, oh, this is a good story actually. So I, I knew, um, and I, I'm going to have to wrap up soon cause I've got to figure out dinner for my children. Cause no worries. that's, that's the next part in this, in the quarantine chef, chef Nick. Um, but I'll tell you this, this fun story. So I knew, I met Travis Kalanick, um, in 2009, but I thought I met him in the beginning of 2009, it turned out it was later in 2009. And I wrote a piece for Vanity Fair about how I had met all these all these guys when they first started their companies and women in some instances too, in rare instances, but when they were just at the beginning. And that was just because of the industries I covered. So I met, I met you know, I wrote the very first ever story, mainstream story on Snapchat. Uh, and when when Evan Spiegel was st still in in college in his dorm room, right, reached out to him. He was in the middle of class, like so. Like I, it, and then I saw this company that this kid in college was building go and turn into Snapchat. I remember talking to Jack Dorsey and Biz Stone when in two thousand and six from the Times I'd called because we heard about this Twitter thing and like wondering what it was and like there was like three employees and they didn't, couldn't even describe what it was. They didn't even know how to describe it, you know, so on and so forth. I go through this long list of like, of these early instances that I interacted with these people. And it wasn't that I like picked the right ones. It was that I interacted with so many, of course, some of them ended up becoming successful and some of them, their companies didn't work out that way. Sure. And I said, and I remember meeting Travis Kalanick at Burning Man in 2009. So the story publishes Travis at this at the time is the CEO of of Uber uh, at the time it was worth 60 billion dollars they were leading up to their IPO blah 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 he decide he wakes up sees that story and tweets at me why are you saying we met at burning man i didn't go in 2009 
So I was like, oh shit, that's an honest mistake. Like um, I realized what had happened was that I had actually been at the Burning Man camp that that Travis was going to, and he just didn't show up that year. But everyone was like, oh, this guy, Travis Kalanick's coming. You should meet him. He's really cool. He's starting this company called Uber. He hadn't actually started it yet, I don't think, or he just started it or whatever. It wasn't a, a thing. So in my in my you know drug-induced, drunken state, sleep-deprived state, I thought I'd met him, but I hadn't. So that was funny, but like no big deal. That just happens at Burning Man to all of us. Yeah, exactly. It's just I think called you and a I hallucination. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, but, but I was like, what a weirdo that like you're, you run a $60 billion company. And like the first time you've tweeted in a while is to tweet that, like, just text me or email and say, Hey dude, I think you got this wrong. Like not a big deal. Like you have to like publicly pick a fight about it. So anyway, onwards, I like move and, um, and then, you know, all the shit starts to go down at, at, at Uber and, um, and I, I'm covering it for Vanity Fair and covering it pretty aggressively because it's pretty bad stuff. Like it's like a lot of sexual harassment stuff that's been pushed under the rug and, and this culture that's just really, really bad and like laws that have been broken and like with the app and things like that. And, and, um, and I, um, I didn't talk to Travis through this because Travis didn't have the time of day for me really anyway. And, and, um, or anyone, you know, it was all, it was business, all business all the time. And I just figured, like, you know, I've written about him before. Like, he's a big boy. Like, he can handle this. Fast forward to not, I think it was, I don't know if it was this year or last, it was last year at the Vanity Fair Oscars party. And I go for work because we have to go. And, you know, you mingle and say hi to people that you write about and people that you're, you know. It's you know, a good party. It's a good party. It's a good party. It's a fun party. Um it's um it's more work for me than a party, but it's you know, it's still like it's really great. It's like super cool to see like, you know, Prepahar there and like to like you know, I I I had a uh, uh, you know, met Elton John. Like that was it's like fun, you know, like it's like cool to see some people like that. And anyway, I'm going I'm cutting through this like crowd of like of just A-list celebrities and CEOs and everything and trying to get to the bar and there's someone else cutting through this and the river is like parting and it's Travis and I see him and I say, Hey bro, how you doing? And he goes, he goes, I ain't shaking your hand, homie. And he keeps walking. Like Jesus. just literally like looks at my hand and like, and I was like, this is after he'd been kicked out of, of Uber. And I was like, Holy shit. Like, like good for him that he like stood up to me and was like, I'm not going to like pretend to be your friend because you wrote all these mean things about me. And then I was like, wait, a I mentioned this to a friend who I, I saw that and I told him and he goes, wait, Travis like has a bone to pick with you. Like you're like number like 2000 on the list of all the people who have wronged him. Imagine how he feels about like the board members who kicked him out and like the, the women that like that exposed him for who he, like all these things. And like, and I was thinking to myself, like, yeah, like you, you're like, that's how you're going to respond to like a reporter who's like covered you. Like, it's just, it's rare that anyone has ever really kind of done that. And there's part of me that respects it, but there's also part of me that's like, dude, there are way bigger things to worry about than me. Oh, I so, so I so resent or I so respect that level of resentment and, and pettiness because it's 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 <laughs> it's me. It, it's me if I wasn't married and, and had my wife in my ear. Um, OK, I, yeah, I, I I do not want your 
children to go hungry, so I'll let you go. My last question, and you can answer in a 20-second burst, but is mm. there's a great saying amongst the 12-step communities, which is, if I am not the problem, then there is no solution. So mm. we kind of had it out in the first hour, and we share politics. What, in your opinion, can we as the left be doing better? Oh, God. Um, <laughs> I... I I think that we I think there's two things. I think you can't fix a broken system um with like love and hugs and roses and 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 sellotape. Like I think you've got to like you got to go in and fix it with sledgehammers and um, and you've got to take chances and be aggressive. And I think, and you've got to come together. And I think that the, the left needs to kind of put aside, it's like holier than nowness for a minute to, to beat Donald Trump because the, the, and, and Mitch McConnell, because the potential repercussions of them not are far worse than them being right about one little stupid thing. And, um, you know, or several little stupid things like it is, it is paramount right now. The only thing, what, what the Republicans are so good at is saying, this is our goal and we are going to rally to get this to happen. Like, you know, Brett Kavanaugh was, was confirmed because the Republicans were like, our goal is to reverse abortion, and the only way we're going to do that is to get this guy into office. It, it that's it. They, like I think that we need to do the same thing. Like we need to put aside like our little petty like th like certain people that don't like AOC on the left because she's too left or the Bernie bros that like send me like nasty emails and because I I didn't support Bernie like like it's like. Get the fuck over yourself. Team up together as a fucking team and like, let's just do this. And I think that that is the only way that we're going to win. And I think that, sure, if you don't want Biden, fine. Like, I don't love Biden, but like, if he ends up being the nominee, like, I'm, I am going to vote for him. And if he doesn't end up being the nominee, like, let's find someone that we can all agree on that we that can be the nominee, like Cuomo or something like that. Whatever it is, I don't care. Just as long as it's someone that we can all agree on, because because the reality is, is we don't agree on, on much and the Republicans don't agree on much, but the Republicans are capable of taking their disagreements aside for the larger goal and the Democrats are incapable of it. And that's what we need to change. Nick Bilton 2024 maybe you know I would but I'm hoping that I'm going to start a bakery uh coffee shop in LA and uh that is where I'm going to be focusing my energy if you would like to invest or buy some bread hit me up we'll make it happen I'll be an angel investor I got I got more than enough scratch to support a small bakery <laughs> <laughs> dude thank you so much thank you so much it's great to chat as always you too my friend That was it. That was Nick Bilton, right? Here we are. We're making fucking podcasts work in a pandemic. Nothing's going to hold me down. Uh-oh. I got to keep on potting. 
fuck? Why don't I ever use my other gifts? I have so many. It's gross. Oh, so many gifts, so much talent. It's overflowing. I feel like Justin Bieber, if he was Jewish and slightly overweight. Oh, I feel like Beyonce, if she had crippling insecurities and also was sort of like unrealized as an artist. I feel like telling you guys, thank you for listening to The Curious Podcast. Have an incredible rest of your week. Enjoy. We got more potting coming to you. No fucking coroni can keep us down over here. My girls, my boys, and my anyone who doesn't want to identify as either of those things. That's right. We're all inclusive here on The Curious Podcast because that's the way it should be. So allow your Uncle Josh to tell you this, this one thing that you can carry on to your end of days, that you could remember as you lay on your deathbed waiting to go to that special place. Remember this. That's right. You're welcome. See you next week, y'all.